Oh yes, Christ, indeed you are the King of glory. And to you all the doors of heaven, the gates must swing wide and lift up their heads that you may enter in. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. You have ascended on high. You have taken captivity itself captive. You have given gifts to men. And we praise you for that great boon from the very side of the Father, from your throne of glory that you have given to us the Holy Spirit. O Spirit of God, we ask this evening that you who alone can open to us the word that you have spoken and cause our deaf and blind natures to behold, grant to us that miracle of sense, of true understanding. O God, we would not come by fleshly means with fleshly expectations and simply approach in that lazy and in that impure style of the heart that would merely come in the expectation that you must give. We humble ourselves and acknowledge that it, it is a gift when you give us sight. And we pray, our God, that you would do that this evening, breaking down the idols of our hearts and erecting Christ alone. May he be sanctified, set apart as holy in all our thoughts and affections. May all that we are and have now be attuned to receive him and his rule and his glory in the reading and the preaching of the word of God and in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me in the Bible, God's holy word, to 1 Samuel chapter 6 as we continue to read and to, con- and to meditate together upon God's gracious preparations for the coming of his king. Not only of David, but the son of David, Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. In some ways, I wish that we could complete the chapter and the whole of what is sometimes called this arc narrative, the narrative of God's working in a time of the ark's exile from the temple. But we're going to save the concluding matter for another time. I'll begin reading on page 229, 1 Samuel 6, 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. 
So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its land, to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the ark and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. This is God's holy word. And probably the sort of passage that we really wouldn't anticipate being in the Word of God. There is humor here. There is a kind of bizarreness that might at first be apparent. But I'd like to bring us into the text by considering something that you might be familiar with if you aren't familiar with this story, and that is the legend of the Trojan horse. I think most of you probably know this story, kids. All right, Trojan horse. So Greeks are at war with the city of Troy. There's a long siege. The siege isn't broken. So what do they do? After 10 years, supposedly, assuming all that the legend says is true, they burn their tents and they leave. And outside the gates of Troy are left this huge wooden horse constructed supposedly as an offering to the god of Troy and as an expression of their victory and celebration. The citizens of Troy, of course, pull the horse into the city and then the night comes. And then the soldiers come out and secretly unlock the gates, and the fleet having returned, Troy is completely overthrown. That's one of the great stories of the ancient world. And there is a kind of similar mistake that the Philistines have made. Here's this small box, probably not that much bigger than this pulpit, realistically, not much, and a little shorter, too. Here's this little box, the symbol of Israel's God with a little seat on it, 
indicating a kind of representation of his throne in heaven over which the angels bow and give glory to the God of Israel, underneath of which is there hidden away inside the covenantal documents of Israel, the law of God on which his righteous throne depends. And they take this into their possession and they set it up beside, or really kind of probably in the anteroom of their God, Dagon, and the celebrations begin. Or rather, really, they don't because things go completely awry. Of course, you know, if you were with us just last week, that the first night Dagon falls down, the second night Dagon is crushed, and then that's just the beginning. Then it's tumors and possibly the bubonic plague spreading throughout Philistia, and everywhere the heavy hand of the Lord goes with his ark. People are saying, why have you brought this here? Are you trying to kill us? Terror and panic, a public disaster. This is not the kind of thing that you get to hide away and just say, well, you know, uh, we'll just work with our news contacts and cover it up. There is no covering this up. This seems like a great victory. And by the time we get seven months later, all pride has drained away. And the only question remaining to this shattered people is, how do we get this thing out of here? There may be lingering doubts. You can see some of those, a kind of undercurrent of dissatisfaction. Can't we just keep it? Are we sure it's really Yahweh, the God of the Israelites? But no, the ark has to go back. The decision by the time the lords of the Philistines, the five lords gather together, has really already been made. And it must go back with the pomp that is appropriate to a great king. It must be returned with glory. Do you notice that that is what the diviners, the magicians, if you will, or the religious consultants of the five lords of the Philistines say, give glory to the God of Israel. Boy, that is really not the outcome that the Israelites expected. And you and I, if we had been there, we would have been utterly shocked. The Philistines are glorifying the God who has made covenant with Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my goal for you this evening and for myself as we meditate together on this passage. If you want one single application, it would be this, just to give God his glory, to give him what he's due. And we'll look at that in three parts under various of his attributes. First, his holiness, then his sovereignty, and finally, his grace. But I want to focus in on his holiness. That'll be where we spend the bulk of our time this evening, and we'll find a description of his holiness or the consideration of it, at least, in verses 1 through 6. Give glory to the God of Israel for the glory of his holiness, which demands, really striking here, a guilt offering. Now, if we had been around at the time, and you and I were just ordinary Philistines, we might have been asking ourselves, why did it take so long? It's been seven months of the Israelite panic. Seven months of plagues and devastation, and terror. What are the leaders doing? Well, there's a dawning realization. And recall, those who have been with us in earlier parts of Samuel, recall the blindness that descends on Israel, particularly in Eli, whose sight goes from not really discerning all the way down to blindness and finally death. There's a dawning sight that comes upon the Philistines. Why has all this come to pass? Not because of Dagon, Not random chance. Jesus has 
done this. Not an accident. It was his hand all along. It looked precarious, but his crown and his scepter have not slipped an inch. It seemed like a bit of a trophy of war, just like the Trojan horse, even a a kind of projection of power. We have this ark in our possession, and if he were really alive, and if he were really as powerful as our God, Dagon, he would never permit himself to be taken, as it were, into captivity. This must be a sign of his weakness. We have seized him, and we have him in our power. In fact, maybe we can even, this is how animism often thinks, we can combine his power with our other gods and get more power. Now we're the really strong people. Here is this seemingly small, apparently fragile little ark. And it actually represents the most dangerous and ultimate power in the entire universe. What an irony. This wasn't a military blunder at all. This was a well-executed strategy by the Lord of Israel. Oh, yes, he's judging his people by all means. But he has not simply gone weakly into exile. He has purposefully gone on a tour of vengeance on those who would defy him and his armies. And I, I, I hope you're beginning to pick up, because this is how the Old Testament is. This is what it's meant to do. I hope you're picking up the story of Jesus behind all of this. Because think about Christ himself, exiled and forsaken on the cross, and the words that we hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would appear he dies in weakness. He truly is weak. In his humanity, he even gives up his spirit. And yet he is God's right-hand man the son of the right hand, the son of power, and all authority. His death is no accident. It is a well-calculated, deeply laid plan that the nations would gather against the Lord and against his Christ in this one city out of all the world that always hates and kills the prophets, Jerusalem. This is not random that they stand up against the Lord and against his anointed. It is orchestrated by a perfect wisdom and accomplishes, as the believers pray in Acts 4, whatever the Lord's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Wow. And they begin to see this. And they begin to come to terms with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in his humiliation. Now, if this is what Jesus does in his humiliation, you fill in the blank when he is arisen in power. So they're ready to surrender. They raise the white flag. They're ready to get rid of this symbol of the Lord's power and his rule and authority. And so they gather together. They decide together what to do. This might be potentially the most united the Philistines have ever been. There are five sort of city-states, if you like. And here they are together with their various and probably sundry diviners and priests, guys who are, again, the religious experts of their day, the consultants, the guys who you go to when there's a spiritual problem, pagans, of course, not believing in the true and living God. Here they come together with their diviners, with their magicians, with their priests to decide not a question of what do we do with the ark, but how do we get it out of here? How do we send it back? It really is a sort of amazing thing. Again, think on the blindness of Israel. 
that cannot even recognize that God has raised up a prophet in Samuel, and the word of the Lord is beginning to come to his people, and instead of inquiring of the Lord, which would be the natural and obvious thing to do for a people who trust him, they cart out his ark and let it get hauled away. What blindness! But the Philistines have seen. They have begun to see where their trials have come. Even a Philistine magician can see this. How often do we recognize where our trials really come from? From whose hand? What weight is pressing down upon us? So it's a moment of momentous retreat. And they declare, give glory to the God of Israel. His glorious hand is the one that is against you. And and the idea there is this heavy hand deserves a heavy weight of glory. God's covenant people fail to recognize it, but the nations begin to see it. As we read in Psalm 96, this promise to Jesus being fulfilled to declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among all the peoples. This is really the plan of attack. And he receives the glory that he is due when his holiness is understood and honored. This is a remarkable moment because, as we'll see the next time that we consider this text, it's so opposite to Israel. But the Philistines realize. They realize they have sinned. They are guilty. An offering must be presented. They are unclean people and they have touched God's holy things. They have equated his holy things and his holy nature with their idols, or maybe even really made them to be less. And now they have begun to discover the the terror of his fury, of his anger against all who will blaspheme and abuse his name. They are not equipped for his holiness to remain. In one sense, wouldn't you love to hear the Philistines say, let's bow down to the God of Israel, let's keep him with us. But the reality is, right now, all they can see is the wrath of God, as it says in Malachi 3, 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. If this is Jesus in his humiliation, indeed, who will stand? But in their blind wisdom, there is sense. Darkened minds, without the aid of God's revelation, of his grace in Christ. They don't know what sort of offering God is going to accept, but they perceive rightly that God may be pacified and that he will, for the pacification of his wrath, to turn it away, accept a sacrifice. He's willing to make peace, even with those who have come under his wrath. And he'll do that as an offering for their guilt is made. And what an offering it is. And I hope this caught our young people's attention. I suspect it did. Again, this is one of those surprising passages in Scripture where you maybe even feel a little uncomfortable because this is the plan that the five lords of the Philistines agree on with their magicians. They're going to give a gift, a golden gift, worthy of a king. A king's ransom, quite literally, And they will cast figurines of what has afflicted them. And that happens to be tumors and mice. And some translations even say hemorrhoids. How'd you like to receive a gift like that? I suspect if some husband in this room went to the jewelers and came back with that, it wouldn't be much of a celebration on your anniversary. 
Yet it brings God glory. They say, give the God of Israel his glory. What are they doing? This is really kind of a remarkable thing that we need to appreciate. They are giving to the Lord, enduring visible signs and tokens of his judgment and his pristine worthiness to be praised for his judgments. We read in Revelation 16, the altar speaks. A remarkable thing. The altar speaks and says, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is really what the Philistines are saying. Not just, please just kind of forgive us, but a guilt offering recognizing that this is actually right and just for the God of all the nations. So to judge them for their defilement of his name. But there's more than this. And it's there in the background of the text. So I'll, I'll just take a little moment to flesh this out. These little images represent not just the awful plagues that afflicted them, the people and the lords alike, we're told. Again, the bubonic plague can sometimes break out in these uh, kind of tumor-like obvious things on the body where the lymph nodes become infected. But uh, people and lords alike, this represents what they actually are, the tumors and the mice. This is what we really all are in our nature. There seems to be a kind of, dare I say, a kind of remarkable humiliation and self-abasement in this sacrifice, five golden tumors, five golden mice. Each one, we're told, represents a lord of the Philistines and the city that they rule, verses 17 and 18. But without perhaps even realizing, almost certainly without realizing the truth of what they're telling about themselves, they are acknowledging that as enemies of the living God and of his redeeming plan for his people, they are themselves a sort of evil and destructive plague that must be healed. Do you notice the way the magicians talk about healing? They are themselves a plague upon the land. And they need to be healed, but more than that, transformed by a grace greater than that. And so here go these sacrifices we're going to find as a kind of reminder to the Lord, intended to be forever before him, of their need, the need of the Philistines for mercy. It's kind of a wonderful declaration. We are guilty and we need your mercy have mercy upon us. That this is really a representation of themselves comes out in one of the, the linguistic puns that are here in the text. There are two words in the passage used for the word tumor in our ESV, but one of them, which is twice used by the religious advisors, can also mean a hill or a mound or a fortification. It has a double meaning. Tumor, fort. That's the simple way of putting it. So, <clears throat> Think about the cities of the Philistines. You're a lord of a city. What kind of city are you in? You're in a city that's on a hill, fortified, with walls around it, sticking up off the land like a tumor. This is how God looks upon his enemies. They may have strength, but they are the tumors that are destroying the creation and his plan for redemption, which is good. That's how their cities are even described as fortified tumor cities. 
in a way. This is really a terrible depiction of man in his strength and his wickedness, isn't it? Unholy, just a plague on the creation, so broken that we break everything else and need to be cut out and eradicated. That's what the Philistines deserve. That's what we deserve. That's who we really are. Well, if you remember your Old Testament, you'll probably remember that God nowhere says, give to me golden tumors and golden mice. What kind of offering does God accept? Well, if you looked through Leviticus, if you looked through Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus, you would find that God calls for animals to be placed in the flames of his altar. On certain occasions, there might be grain, wine, fruit presented and waved before the Lord. But there's a remarkable strand that runs through the Old Testament, and I want you to hear it. I'll read a few verses. Psalm 40, verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Psalm 51, 16. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. First Samuel, a little bit later in the same book. 15.22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Isaiah 1.11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings. And then Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 in Matthew 9. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Did you catch that? I hope it's obvious. God commands his people to give a sacrifice. But then it's, he doesn't go back on his word, but then he comes and says, that's not what I really want. The sacrifice. It isn't the animal sacrifice that he requires and accepts. The Philistines, in some kind of mysterious, really remarkable way, though so deeply in the dark and really mistaken, even in what they bring to the Lord, somehow realize that God accepts a sacrifice And he accepts a sacrifice that isn't just an animal, but even these golden figurines. I think what they're really doing is helping us to see the way to the sacrifice of Jesus. I want to tie some things together before we quickly move on. A guilt offering is necessary, but it's not one that we can provide. God himself has to provide the lamb for the guilt for the burnt offering. And the astonishing thing is that in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a guilt offering and a complete restitution, a holy gift, not just worthy of a king, but of God himself. And notice what Peter says about this in 1 Peter 1. You were ransomed. Ooh, boy, doesn't that sound like the Philistines ransoming their lives. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ. Isn't this what Jesus has really done? Pave the way for a better sacrifice, a final, once-for-all sacrifice for even Philistines. And that gift of his own lifeblood is presented to God in the shape of what has afflicted us. What has afflicted us? but the hand of God. At the right hand of God is one who in his hands has the marks and the scars 
of our irreverence and idolatry and rebellion and all the corruption that just comes up like a polluted fountain within our hearts. The image of what was against us is there. Accompanied by something even more surprising and wonderful, a pierced side. And there in the presence of the Father are the symbols, not of mice and of tumors, but of our sin and our corruption and our weakness and inability that signify what need to be removed from us, our evil works in our hands and our evil hearts. These are ever presented before the Father and satisfactory. For Philistines that come to him by faith. What a wonderful thing. Better tokens than gold and silver. A better purchase. And this is then really beginning. Just beginning. Let the light dawn a little bit. Let it break in here through the Old Testament. Beginning to show what a mighty gospel we have for the church and for the nations that at the right hand of the Father there should be a perfect sacrifice ever presented to God demonstrating the power of Jesus' death, the symbol of what must be taken away, the hand of God's wrath. And so in dying, we see a second exodus for Jesus. He plunders death. He is triumphant over death and over all his enemies. He leads captivity captive, and he gives gifts to you. And this is what the Philistines remember. It really is an astonishing thing that they keep bringing up Egypt and the departure from Egypt. Notice what it says there in verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Do you remember that they had already been talking about the Exodus back in chapter 4? They saw the ark, they heard the shouts, they heard the celebration, and they said, Woe to us, this is the same God that brought his people out of Egypt. And in fact, at the time of the departure from Egypt, the Song of Moses says, interesting, very specifically, that he struck fear into the heart of the Philistines. Well... This is now the second time they recall God's mighty victory over Egypt, and they are afraid, and the story is applied. Don't be stupid now, guys. This is what he did in Egypt. This is what he's going to do to you. Surrender while there's still time. Be smart. Return your stolen property. It's Exodus part two. The glory of God is seen in his perfect holiness, demanding a sacrifice, and insisting on his the return of his stolen goods. Now, very quickly, moving into verses 7 through 12, a second part. God deserves the glory for the glory of his sovereignty, and it's demonstrated in a kind of a test. Remember that this book is in some ways all about anticipating and looking forward to the coming of a king. In Judges, at the very end of Judges, we get the summary statement of the whole book. At the very last verse of the book, it says... In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. The point being, you have to have a king to stop this business of waywardness, self-interest, and going your own way. David is going to come upon the scene very shortly. But even as we see the ark going into and returning from exile, we see that there is a greater king ruling. Here is the symbol of his authority. Yes, off with the Philistines, but 
the Lord God reigns. And this is the king's awesome victory, his sovereignty. He crushes and he slaughters the Philistines. He plunders them. He returns and he does it all single-handedly. No army, no assistance. He simply marches out to defeat the Philistines where Israel failed. He utterly overthrows them and brings them into disarray. And so his arm is not too short to do anything. Nothing is impossible with your God who rules and reigns over all. If he can do that, he can save his people from their sins. If he can do that, he can announce the gospel to the nations and call his people in. His arm is not incapable of executing his righteousness. In Isaiah 59, we read this wonderful statement about how the Lord looks. It displeases him. There is no righteousness. There's no man, no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation. If he can do all of that, you can be sure, and the Philistines get this, you can be sure he knows how to direct his property back to where it goes. So they construct a test. Is it really the Lord that has done this? There might be still some questioning. After all, wouldn't you hesitate to give up your victory, your honor, your medals, to lose face, give up your gold? Well, here's the test. It's really a kind of a brilliant test. And I, Paul is not here with us this evening, but I'm sure he would understand this, and some of you might as well. If you've ever had milk cows who are not dry and their calves are there, what do they want to do? They don't want to leave their calves. Well, the test is take these two cows. They're producing milk. They have young. Put the young at home. They've never pulled a cart. Attach them to a cart, a new cart. There's a kind of holiness about this that they're attempting. And what are we expecting them to do? If you have ever farmed or had anything to do with cattle, you expect them to go straight back to the barn or at the, at the least to just wander off in any direction. All their instincts are telling them, go back. So as one commentary puts it, if the answer to the question is that the Lord has done this, then he is going to override the natural behavior of these cows. They're going to ignore their bulging udders and their hungry, bleeding cows and trot merrily along the road straight to the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh, which is uphill. Do you see how all of this runs contrary to anything that is normal? And then they say, then you'll know that it was the Lord, and you'll know why he's done this, why he's brought these plagues on you. They need to know this, don't they? Because if it isn't the Lord, then it's coincidence, and maybe we can try again someday. But if it is the Lord, then he's victorious, and we can't touch his people either. Well, the outcome is contra all ordinary circumstances because we've already read the story. I won't go into it. They go straight up the road. (laughs) They go straight up the road. No turning, not to the right, not to the left. Like they're running home because there's an invisible driver. The Lord reigns over even the instincts of the animals, and he deserves in that the glory of Philistines and his church for his sovereignty. But finally, verses 13 through 18, notice the glory of his grace. Because here comes the ark on this new cart and the Israelites who are out harvesting wheat, May, June, approximately that time, stop their work of harvesting with joy to receive the cart with the ark. They take the ark off. They slaughter the cows and burn up the cart. And here we see that there's not just gold that's sent by the Philistines, but even a a sort of 
animal sacrifice. And the Lord accepts it. The Philistine lords watch from a distance. And then they go home. There's no effort to say, let's rally the army one more time. They just go back. Because they have already learned that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a powerful psychological and spiritual defeat for Philistia. They won't end their attempts. But the Lord in this moment receives their offering. And in that does, I think, really two things. First, extends the promise to actually heal them by grace. No, they're not his people. Yes, they have defied him and in their impurity, even gone to touch the ark. But if they will come to him, they too will enjoy the blessing of his protection and redemption. He makes this known to them. It is an invitation, a declaration of his grace, even to people that Israel would say, those guys are kind of the worst of the worst in the Old Testament leading up to Babylon and Assyria. They're kind of the worst. The way in which all of this takes place reveals something of the grace that we have in Christ. The cows don't turn to the right. They don't turn to the left. And we read that this is precisely what Jesus does. Luke 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is determined to yield his life the sacrifice. And so in this anticipation of a greater sacrifice, here's the stone, a testimony to God's mighty and saving work, even the Philistines. But, now here's the but. They see all this and they don't believe. Isn't that a terrible thing? And Israel's no better, just to be clear. Isn't it a terrible thing that you and I can be told again and again about the grace of God in Christ, even be witnesses of his power, taste the things of the heavenly age to come, and never repent, submit, believe? How true it is what it says in the proverb. Philistines and so often human nature by itself. The dog returns to its vomit and the pig that was washed to lying in the mud. That's who we really are, desperately needing God to open our eyes. Now, quickly. I think you know this is not the last time that something so small as microbes or insects or rodents will change the course of history. Just think back to 2020. It's not difficult for the Lord to bring a proud people low. And again, if this is what Jesus can do and does in his humiliation, what will he do in the day when he reveals his glory? Humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and give him the glory. There is a little tiny note of hope that isn't in the text, but it's there. And that is, when David becomes king, and still has battles with the Philistines, he has a company of mighty men. His great warriors, 
And among them are those under Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the Pelethites and the Cherethites, who it just so happens are Philistines. Do you see how Jesus Christ is determined to subdue the nations? We should with them kiss the sun lest he be angry and we perish in the way. How blessed are all who trust in him. Let's give him the glory and pray. Yes, our God, glorious is your great and holy name. We honor you who has victory over the nations, who through Jesus Christ is determined to subdue by grace all that you are calling to yourself and even at last to make every knee to bow and to declare the worthiness of the mighty name, the blessed name of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. We adore and give you thanks that you have treated us with such grace when we have failed to treat you as the Holy One whose name is holy. We acknowledge, O Lord, your blessed sovereignty in bringing us to know this gospel, and we plead with you, O God, that you would do a work in our day to tear down our idols and to grant to us true sight of you, our King, and a holy zeal to declare his name, his glorious name among the nations. We ask this in that blessed name of Jesus. Amen.